0: friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we make keeping up with literature easy. It's like being spoon-fed the latest research through your earbuds. Now, a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. First of all, we have COVID on the wrong side of your PPE. Then, adding some nuance to the urine analysis. After that, how much workup infants need for otitis media. Then, out-of-hospital ECMO for VFib, And finally, dancers' fractures. Might just mean dancing in a boot. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the dazzling Vivian Lay, Michael Wolfe, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. And so without delay here's the first article which was titled diagnosed and undiagnosed covid-19 in u.s emergency department healthcare personnel a cross-sectional analysis out of the annals of emergency medicine as frontline healthcare workers we stand right inside the door of the hospital and thus we kind of have the highest exposure to undifferentiated patients in this era that means facing the highest risk of infection with covid-19 Once you've got it, you can spread it too, especially if you don't know that you have it. The first step in recovery is always admitting that you have a problem, though. This was a multicenter prospective surveillance study of healthcare practitioners assessing the prevalence of diagnosed and undiagnosed cases of SARS-CoV-2 in 20 high-volume U.S. emergency departments. Before the study, already 2.8% of the healthcare workers there had already been diagnosed with COVID-19. Then, a selected group of 1,600 healthcare workers without a prior history of infection were tested by PCR and serology, finding that 1.8% of those workers had current or past infections without them knowing it. Based on this, that gives a total of 4.6% of emergency department healthcare providers contracting COVID-19, and nearly 40% of them going undiagnosed. Many did not think that they'd been infected, but a whole 76% actually recalled having symptoms compatible with infection, and 89% of those people continued to work despite those symptoms. So while it might seem really silly not to show up to work because of very mild symptoms, it might be necessary in this day and age. So in a spoonful, the estimated prevalence of COVID-19 infections in U.S. emergency department healthcare providers was 4.6% with over 38% being undiagnosed. Then after that, we have the second article titled Predicting Urinary Tract Infections with Interval Likelihood Ratios out of the Journal of Pediatrics. So for a lot of us, when investigating UTIs in kids, we mostly interpret the UA and micro as sort of binary tests, either it's positive or it's not, using arbitrary cutoffs for things like leukocyte esterases, white blood cells, and bacteria to consider these as a positive or negative test. This gets rid of an entire range of subtlety that could be available to us, though. Because depending on the numbers, the likelihood ratios can vary significantly. And this can help you make the right decision for the child in front of you. This study was a retrospective single-center study of 2,100 patients under 2 years old who had a urine analysis and urine culture. Most of these patients were black at 85% of them. And the prevalence of UTIs was 9.2%. They calculated likelihood ratios for the various components of the UA and micro, establishing sort of ranges for the leukocyte esterases, hemoglobin, protein, white blood cells, red blood cells, and even bacterial load. The original paper and our blog have great figures on this, which I think are worth taking a look at, but I'm going to highlight some of the major points. Being leukocyte esterase positive at all had a 7.3 interval likelihood ratio, which was pretty good. But if you had three plus leukocyte esterase, then that interval likelihood ratio increased to 38. Combined with a positive nitrate, this was a pretty powerful positive predictor of UTI. Negative leukocyte esterase and nitrates were both fairly good negative predictors. On microscopy, at least 20 to 50 white blood cells, or many, bacteria were both positive predictors, with interval likelihood ratios of 11 and 14 respectively. Both uh, quite impressive. If these were low, then they became good negative discriminators. Now I know that's a bunch of numbers, it's hard to get them to stick in your head, and it really doesn't do the table justice, so I encourage you to take a look at it on our blog, the link of course is in the show notes. In a spoonful for pediatric UTIs, looking at the UA numbers as a range may help predict UTIs with more or less certainty. Then we have the third article, which was titled Invasive Bacterial Infections in Afebrile Infants Diagnosed with Acute Otitis Media, again out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, the younger the infant, of course, the more that we worry about invasive bacterial infections. Is it really necessary to do a full septic workup on any infection, though? What if it's just an uncomplicated acute otitis media? What really is the risk of an afebrile infant developing an invasive bacterial infection due to an ear infection? This was a retrospective multicenter study, over 10 years including 1,600 afebrile infants less than 90 days old with acute otitis media. Most of the cohort was in that sort of 60 to 90 days old period, but 6% was less than 30 days, and 30% was in that middle ground of 30 to 60 days old. From the entire cohort, 17% had blood cultures and 6% had CSF taken. Thankfully, none of these patients had bacteremia or meningitis. In the less than 28 days old, only half of them had blood cultures and only a third of them had their CSF taken, and yet most of these were treated with antibiotics and half of them were discharged. As the kiddos got older, the proportion of them getting full workups was less and less, Really, I think this study is reassurance that afebrile children with acute media are unlikely to develop dangerous bacterial infections. And that in real life, there's a lot of practices where a lot of doctors aren't doing full workups on them either. Be careful with this data though. You have to consider that acute media is kind of a subjective diagnosis. Also, there wasn't any follow-up on these patients. It was just assumed that, that since they didn't present to the same institution, that they did not develop severe disease. Keep in mind that this does not apply to febrile infants, though. In a spoonful, the prevalence of invasive bacterial infections was very low among afebrile infants who were less than 90 days old with acute otitis media. Then we have the fourth article, which was titled Advanced Reperfusion Strategies for Patients with Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest and Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation, ARREST Trial, a phase 2 single-center open-label randomized controlled trial out of The Lancet. We have come a long way down the road of resuscitation, and we've gotten a lot, a lot better at it. We want to be aggressive with these patients, improve rates of survival, and above all else, have good neurological outcomes. If we were to get out the big guns, that's right, the really big guns, ECMO, and add that to standard resuscitation when it fails, would that help? Here we have a single center pragmatic trial in which only 30 patients were randomized to receive either venoarterial ECMO or standard ACLS for refractory out of hospital VFib or VTAC cardiac arrest. Here, refractory meant that there was no ROSC after three shocks. Their primary outcome was survival to discharge. Some notable exclusion criteria were a transport time over 30 minutes, trauma, burns, drug overdose, and GI bleeding. By chance alone, the ACLS group happened to have more patients with coronary artery disease and most of the risk factors that kind of go along with it. Two patients from the ECMO group were pronounced dead based on metabolic criteria before being cannulated. So in the first interim analysis of this trial, the ECMO group actually had higher survival rates. There were six survivors in the ECMO group, that's 43% of the ECMO patients, versus just one survivor in the continued ACLS group, that's 7% of those patients. Because of this difference showing strong evidence that ECMO was superior over standard ACLS, the trial was stopped early. The benefits of ECMO didn't even stop there though. The ECMO group actually had better cumulative survival, which wasn't really hard to do because none of the ACLS group patients survived past three months. Perhaps the most important outcome, of course, survival with good neurological outcome, was also pretty good in the ECMO group. All survivors had a modified Rankin scale of three or less at six months, meaning that they could walk without assistance, but required some help with activities of daily living. Now, before we start doing ECMO on everybody, there are a few things to consider about this trial. First was that this only reflects the practices of a single center with a well-established ECMO program already in place. Other sites might not perform as well. Second, the cannulation that was done in the study for ECMO was done by cardiologists in the cath lab. This isn't exactly standard and may have affected the outcomes. In a spoonful refractory out-of-hospital v arrest, which has largely been considered to be uniformly fatal in the past, now ECMO could change that, improving survival and achieving good neurological outcomes. Then, although that act was hard to follow, we have the fifth article, which was titled Hard-Sold Shoes vs. Short Leg Cast for 5th Metatarsal Evulsion Fractures, a multicenter non-inferiority randomized control trial out of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Now, the 5th metatarsal base avulsion fracture, which is often called the dancer's fracture, is a pretty common injury to the foot. Imagine for me that these patients could actually be dancers, and then it would be very important, you would think, that these patients would want better function outcomes and would want to return to their normal activities as quickly as possible, trying to get these patients back up on their toes. This was a trial of 78 adult patients with 5th metatarsal zone 1 tuberosity, avulsion, comminuted, or displaced fractures, who were initially placed in a short leg posterior splint after the initial visit for this injury. At a one-week follow-up appointment, the participants were randomized to either a treatment with a hard-soled shoe or continued with a short leg cast the primary outcome was pain at six months on a 100 mm visual analog scale on that scale the absolute difference comparing the hard-soled shoe group to the short leg cast group was only 1.3 millimeters which is pretty much nothing the secondary outcome was return to pre-injury activities which was significantly reduced in the hard-soled shoe group by almost a week taking 37 days That being said, patient satisfaction was similar between the two groups. Before you start applying the cell, there were several relevant exclusion criteria from this study. That is, obesity, diabetes, concurrent lower extremity injuries, open or pathological fractures. But this still opens the door for really considering putting a lot of patients in a boot right away, which is quicker and maybe more patient-centered. In a spoonful, in patients with fifth base avulsion fractures, dancers' fractures, Whether treated with a hard-soled shoe and weight-bearing is tolerated, or with a short leg cast, pain levels at six months were similar, but the return to regular activities was shorter by a whole week for the hard-soled shoe group. And that wraps everything that we covered this week. Let's do a quick wrap-up to try to consolidate everything that we learned. First off, we had prevalence of COVID-19 infections in emergency department healthcare providers was found to be about 5% but nearly 40% of those infections were going undiagnosed. Next, don't think of pediatric UAs as yes or no tests. Consider the numbers, and this will give you a lot more nuance when interpreting them, because the interval likelihood ratios can actually change a lot. Next, you can feel fairly reassured in deciding not to do a full septic workup in infants with acute otitis media, particularly in older infants, but probably keep this to a case-by-case approach. Next, ECMO coming to save the day, blowing a continued ACLS out of the water for the treatment of out-of-hospital VFIB arrests when three shocks just didn't do the job. And lastly, touch base with your orthopedic colleagues, but hard-soled shoes and weight-bearing is tolerated may be reasonable for 5th metatarsal avulsion fractures. Since they have similar amounts of pain at six months and return to normal activities was actually faster in this group. Now then, you've already earned them and we offer them, CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where you can also find links to all the articles summarized. And if you haven't already, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.